So today we will be, once again, in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, our message will be centered around verses 17 through 20. But like last week, I'm going to read a larger section for some context. And because this is uh, altogether uh, one thought, like the, the previous Verses that Dale preached, uh, one long sentence or one long thought that Paul has has given to us. So I'll read for us from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is, the, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this morning as we, we look at this text, uh, particularly 17 through 20, it is a continuation of, um, of last week. Where, where, uh, last week we, we talked some about what, what kind of prayer this is that Paul is making. What is the nature of the type of prayer what prayer are we drawn to? Uh, what does what does God expect of us in prayer? And we discuss the seriousness of Paul's desire for the Ephesians, the things that he's looking for in their lives, things he, he is hoping for. Um, and we discuss the things that he saw that God had brought to them. And in last week, Paul is praising God for the faith that he is working into these Ephesian believers. And this week, we continue on uh, in that vein, in that thought. Um, and I will, as I start, I will back up just a little bit um, to verse 16. But Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So also Paul is, is consistent in his prayer. He is uh, persistent in uh, bringing these things to God and his desire is for these believers. <clears throat> so with those things in mind, we will look at how Paul continues to pray for the Ephesians and what those things mean. And one of the first things that we see is that Paul prays for the Ephesians to have godly wisdom. Uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. So first we're going to talk about glorious sight. 
this glorious sight, this glorious revelation, this glorious knowledge that Paul is praying for for the Ephesians. So why would Paul pray for wisdom? What even is wisdom? Um, I looked at a lot of definitions of what wisdom was. I remember as a young man, uh, somebody told me, you get knowledge from college, but wisdom from God. And I, it always stuck with me. I didn't really know what they meant by that, but it did stick with me. But what is wisdom? Why do we, why do we use the word wisdom? And one definition that I kind of cobbled together, um, knowledge or wisdom is knowledge of the truth that is active, that is put into action. If you have knowledge of how to do something, but you don't actually do it, it's not really a beneficial knowledge. And we can know a lot of things. Um, knowledge is, is really just half of wisdom. Um, so Paul prays for wisdom. Paul prays that, that the Ephesians would, would work and act according to the truth. Um, Proverbs 16, 16 says of wisdom, and we all know this, how much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. How often do we pursue something because it seems beneficial to us when the more beneficial thing is something else entirely? Do we ask God for wisdom? Do we, do we pray that, um, that God would make us wise? Do we pray that God will, would increase in us, in our family, in our friends, in our children, wisdom? Or is that not something we're overly concerned with? Knowledge is, it's just, is, knowledge is half of wisdom. Knowledge is understanding what the Bible says about how to live. And if we're not careful, we can be good theologians in that we have an understanding of what the Bible says. But wisdom is living according to that knowledge. I'm going to read from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. If you want to turn there, uh, I'm going to read John 14, 15 through 24. <clears throat> if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? 
Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So this is wisdom from Christ. Wisdom is obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. So Jesus is, is, is telling his disciples the, the way things are to go. And, they, and then he gives them understanding. He is giving them this information. And he says, the world won't see me, but you will see me. How will they see him? Because they're living according to the truth. Because his spirit dwells within them. So this, this wisdom is, is taking the knowledge, the word of God, and it is living according to that. And these Ephesians would be called to the same thing. They would be called to, to say, Jesus has come, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised, Jesus ascended, and the spirit that now lives in you will live in, in you forever. And by this spirit, you're to live. You're to live according to this spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-30 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let no one who let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. <clears throat> we have worldly wisdom. There's worldly wisdom all around. If you need worldly wisdom, you can go to the internet. You can ask questions, and you'll have unending opinions on how things should come about. What's the problem with all these opinions? Well, they all differ. They all. Everyone's offering different advice, and they're offering this advice according to their own understanding, not according to the truth of God. So this wisdom is a weak wisdom. This wisdom is a corrupted wisdom. And while the things of God appear foolish to the lost, God will destroy the wisdom of the earth. The wisdom of man no man can come before God and bring their wisdom and say, this is why I should be saved. Even Job, who God counted as righteous, wanted his day in court. He wanted to go before God, but that was foolish because there was no wisdom in Job. There was no word in Job that could change God's mind, that could silence God. There is no wisdom that compares. So when Paul prays for wisdom for the Ephesians, he is praying that they would know the word of God and that they would live according to the word of God. Wisdom, knowledge of the truth of God and resolve 
to live according to that knowledge, that's an amazing gift. And much like the salvation that makes it possible, it is a gift. Wisdom is a gift. We should desire it for one another. We should desire it for ourselves. And how do we acquire wisdom? Wisdom is like faith. It's a gift from God. Uh, James 1, 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. God wants us to have wisdom. God wants us to know him according to his truth. God makes available this truth so that we can know him rightly. So Paul wants, he wants wisdom for the Ephesians. He wants them to know God. Now that may seem like a, maybe like a, a platitude or a, a kind of a general statement that you should know God, but this knowing of God isn't a cursory knowledge. It's not like the way we know famous people. I could tell you all kinds of things about um, Jose Canseco. He was born in, in Cuba on July 2nd, 1964. He hit 462 home runs. He was the first 40-40 man. I know a lot of things about Jose Canseco because I really liked him. I don't know Jose Canseco, and he certainly doesn't know me. If I were to see him at Walmart, he wouldn't know who I am. He would have no idea who I am. But sometimes we attribute, we, we know somebody based on the knowledge that we have of them. But the, the knowledge that Paul wants the Ephesians to have of God is an intimate knowledge. He wants us to walk closely with God. And uh, in Psalm chapter 73 or Psalm number 73, verse 28, it says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Have you made God your refuge? Is this where you hide? Is this where you run? Is this where you, you go for everything? It is good for me to be near to God. We when we understand the Old Testament view of knowledge, when we see that, that Adam knew Eve, and that's how their kids came about, this is the same kind of knowledge that we're to have of God. It's, it's intimate. As a young Christian, someone explained the idea of intimacy with God as into me you see. And I thought that was, that was interesting it was an interesting concept, especially considering that God has searched and knows all of our ways. We spend our lives trying to, to figure out who we are. So we, you know, we can be true to ourselves. And we go about it in all these really dumb kind of ways. But the reality is, if we want to know ourselves, we need to know God because he knows us more than we know us. <clears throat> so have we made God our refuge? Have we, have we a desire to be intimate with God? Or do we keep things aside? Do we have things that we don't want to share with God because we understand that those things are not of God? <clears throat> 
John 5, 39 and 40, the Gospel of John 5, 39 and 40 says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So this is, this is that knowledge again. Teacher, what is it that I must do? I, I know all the commandments. I've kept them since my youth. You okay? That's good. Sell everything you have and follow me. That's a different, that's a different conversation. We can search the scriptures because our desire is to have eternal life and we can, we can understand that eternal life was purchased through the blood of Christ Jesus. But if we don't have Christ Jesus, if we don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, then we have refused to come to God for the eternal life that we desire. We won't have eternal life based on the things that we know. We have eternal life based on what God has wrought in us. What's the evidence of salvation? What's our works? What's our fruit? What are these? What do we bear out? What comes out of our heart? Jesus wasn't concerned with what we put into our bodies, but what is in our heart? Because that's what that overflow, that what comes out of our, our heart, that is the evidence of who we are, of what, of what spirit we live by. Do we live by the spirit of death or do we live according to the spirit of life? As we read in uh, Romans chapter 8. So with this glorious sight, Paul wants us, he wants us and the Ephesians to have wisdom. He wants them to, to see God to know God, that you may have uh, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of Him. Intimacy. Do we have a knowledge of God? And in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. We can, as Christians, not see these things clearly. We can be darkened in our understanding. Um, we can, and, and, and all this to say is, is not to cheapen knowledge. We definitely need knowledge because it's that knowledge that we act on. But are, are our eyes dim? Are our eyes closed? Many times there are things that I don't see. And I pray, God, Open my eyes. I don't want to be a, a dullard. I don't want to be dim in my spirit. I need to see God clearly. We can live intimately with God by seeing Him clearly. And the, the more clearly we see God, the greater our desire for Him will be. Because God is altogether glorious. There is nothing and none like Him. We also see in this, in this passage that we have a glorious inheritance. We have a glorious inheritance. Uh, verse 18 again, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
So this one is, is a little tricky because as I read this week, I started to wonder whose inheritance is this? Because as you, you read, my first thought is to say, well, this is our inheritance. This is us inheriting. We're joint heirs with Jesus. This is us inheriting the kingdom of God. Uh, but then as, as I read and read and read, I, I can see emerging this idea that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So I started to wonder, is, are we God's inheritance? Is that what we, is that what this is saying here? Um, it's a joyous thing to think about the idea that we would be the inheritance of God because wrapped up in that is he enjoys us. You know, it's one thing for us to say as, as a rebel against God, he saved me. And that's an amazing thing. I can't conceive of that. But then it's a, it's another thing entirely to say, well, no, not only that, not only are you saved, not only ha- are you, uh, have you been plucked out of condemnation, but God delights in you. That's a different thing. In, in my mind, that's, that's a difficult thing for me to wrap my, my mind around. That God, who is holy, would delight in me. So as I studied this week and I looked at different commentators, sure enough, there are two different thoughts about how this this passage can be interpreted. And I'll briefly go into some of the different scriptures and the different thought behind that. But first we'll look as, are we God's inheritance? Is that what we're talking about here? And is there a scripture to a scriptural basis for that? Uh, in De- Deuteronomy, there are a couple of helpful verses um, one is in Deuteronomy 32, chapter 9. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 32, 9 says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. So this is, this is God's people. This is an allotted inheritance for God, not in the sense that that we magnify God or add anything to God, but in the sense that he delights in his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. And then again in Deuteronomy 9.29, For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. They being his chosen people, the Israelites, people that God marked as his own people. But they are your people and your heritage. We are bought with a price. When you buy something, you you make a payment for something and you get something in return. In that sense, we are the inheritance of God. We are, we are his. So the idea... Uh, that we are God's inheritance um, isn't unheard of in Scripture. This this isn't a, a foreign concept. Um, Psalm 149.4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in His people. He adorns the humble with salvation. The Lord takes pleasure 
The Lord enjoys His people. Have you thought about that? Have you thought that the Lord takes pleasure in you, that the Lord delights in you? When you think about the fact that you aren't saved according to your works, you aren't being sanctified according to your own ideals and principles, that you are saved by the power of God and by the power of God living in you, and that power that lives in you is working out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? And that you're being sanctified, you're being conformed to the image of Christ, it's easier for us to understand, okay, God takes joy in us. God delights in us. Because God is in us. But God chooses to enjoy His people. If we look at the other, uh, the idea that, that this inheritance is for us, um, there is some scripture, obviously, that, that, that probably makes a little more sense, especially in the context. Um, I believe that this is a more common understanding of, of the phrase. And there are a couple things in here, too, that we see parallels of. Um, you see this, the phrase, the riches of the glory, of his glory. Um, see specifically uh, in uh, where's in eighteen at the end. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? You sort of see this phraseology in in the New Testament. Uh, Colossians we've talked about as a kind of a sister book or a cousin book to Ephesians. Um, so you see a lot of parallels in Colossians one twenty seven. It says to them God chose to make known. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God is making known to the Gentiles this mystery. And this mystery we see alluded to all throughout the Old Testament. And then we see it come to fruition uh, in the New Testament, this mystery of the, the marriage of Christ in the church, this, this mystery of the glory of God and the hope of salvation through Christ. So in this sense, the riches of the glory of this mystery, this is our inheritance. This is, this is the inheritance that we are given as the children of God. And what a marvelous inheritance it is. If you look at this phrase again, uh, the riches of glory, we see more evidence of this uh, in Romans chapter 9, uh, Romans 9, 22 and 23. It says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared for beforehand for glory when we see this phrase riches of glory um we see two other two other things also included we also see the power of god alluded to and then we see the glory of God. 
So we see these these things together, which which relates back to our passage today. But in order to make known the riches of his glory, God has saved up vessels of mercy. When, when Christ returns, it will be evident to everyone that there are those who are saved and that they are saved by his power. Because there will be many who will not be saved by his power. There will be many that, as we, we talked about before, they, they searched in some other place for the secret of eternal life. But what they did not do is they did not come to Christ. They did not repent of their sin, turn away from it, and follow Jesus. In Philippians four nineteen, it says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to what? The riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So we are the recipients of this inheritance, this glory in Christ Jesus. And what is this inheritance? This inheritance is salvation. Salvation in Christ. Next we'll talk about the glorious power and this is a power unto salvation. But for this particular section, a case could be made for either interpretation, and the best part of it is, if this is God's inheritance, we ultimately are beneficiaries of that. What a joy it is for us to be the inheritance of God, to be the object of His delight. And if it's the other way around, then it's the same, right? Our Our inheritance is Christ. If our desire to go to heaven is a desire for anything but Christ, then we have a misplaced understanding of what the purpose of salvation is. The purpose of salvation is to reconcile us with God. And our joy in death will be eternity with God. This eternal life, this elusive thing that, that so many people spend so much time and energy looking everywhere for, but in Christ, is wrapped up in Christ. And so we'll look at the, the last section, glorious power. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ? when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul is is praying for this power for the Ephesians. And what is this great power? It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. And if we are in Christ, then we also are to be raised. Amen. Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we are united in Christ, we will be in death, we will be reunited, reunited with Christ, or we'll be uh, united with Christ in a resurrection like his. The power of God that raised Christ from the dead, that defeated death, 
This is the very power of salvation. Philippians 3, 19 and 21. Philippians 3, 19 and 21. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. If you think about the known universe and how many billions of systems and planets that we know exist in it, if you think about things as simple as why don't we float away when we walk outside, gravity it's something that we take for granted, but it's an extremely powerful, extremely precise force, so much so that it's you can measure it, you can test it, you can... You, you can work with it and understand a part of it, but it's ultimately a mystery. Why are we able to breathe right now? Why, why is blood flowing through my veins? Why does the sun burn the way that it does? Why are we not destroyed by the radiation from the heat of the sun? All these different things. Why is there a, a firmament? Why is there an atmosphere? These things were brought about by the power of God. And this is the same power that brings about our salvation in Christ. The very power of God. Colossians 2.12 says, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. So we are buried with him in baptism. We talk about this, this symbol of baptism where you, you go under and then you, you come up again. We are to be raised with Christ by the same power that Christ was raised. So Paul is, is, is preaching these things. He is praying these things. He, he desires for them to have sight he desires for them to see God, to know God. He desires for them to have an inheritance in God. And he desires for them to have access to this power that is power unto salvation. So who is Paul preaching to? Who is, who is this letter written to? Well, it's written to Ephesian Christians. It's very important when we study Scripture, when we look at Scripture, that we know who what we're reading is intended for. That'll help us have good context. So if, if Paul is, is writing to Ephesian Christians, why is he preaching the gospel to them? This is an, an interest. We, we see over and over again, we see in Philippians, Paul preaches the gospel to the church. These are, already, these are the people that are already saved, right? Well, there are a couple reasons that I think Paul does this. And one that, that I can appreciate, Paul doesn't know. Paul doesn't know if the people that he is addressing are saved or not. I don't know. I don't know who here 
is saved. Now that may seem like a strange statement. I have discernment. I have understanding. I I understand about the fruit of the Spirit, but I also have seen the fruit of the Spirit be faked. I've seen people live their whole lives in church and then up and walk away. Why? Did God rescind their salvation? Is is salvation like a, a nice hat you can just take off and put on whenever you want? No. So we can see evidence of Christ in people. We can see spiritual activity in people. We can see desire in people to uh, come and be a part of the church. But we can't know. That knowledge is for God. And as, as an elder, I want to make sure that everyone in our congregation understands this gospel. I have been in church services where someone has come forward at the end of the service and prayed and then had it announced. There was a lady, she was like 37 years old. She'd been in the church since literally since she had, was born and had never accepted Christ. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. I have a friend who had an elderly gentleman in his 80s who had built the church that they were worshiping in and had served as a deacon for decades and had never received Christ. We had two pastors at our at our uh, wedding. Um, we had lots of interesting things at our wedding, but we had two pastors, and one of them told me that he was preaching. He was a pastor, and he had been in, through seminary, but was not saved. So Paul is explaining these things again and again and again because he wants the people that he loves so dearly that he prays for constantly, he wants them to know what this gospel is. He wants to explain this mystery to them so that when the Spirit of God comes, that they'll have a full understanding and so that they will have no excuse. Spurgeon says, if your friends and your loved ones want to go to hell, let them crawl over you with you holding their legs as they go. So Paul is is bringing the gospel because he doesn't know whom will hear this that is not saved, that needs to hear the gospel. And secondly, As a redeemed follower of Christ, what do you need every single day? You need the gospel. Not so you can be saved again over and over and over again. No, it doesn't work that way. But I need the gospel each day so that I can know again this hope of salvation in Christ so it's ever before me. So I don't look to the left or look to the right. So always in front of my face, I see it. I think it's John Piper that says, before my feet hit the floor in the morning, I preach the gospel to myself. I want to know why it is, what it is that I have to rejoice in. I want to know what it is that I have, what it is that I have to be thankful for. I want to know what it is, 
what mercy it is of God. I want that to be clear every single day. My prayer for each of you is like Paul's. I would love to see each of us grow in godly wisdom. I would love that each of us would understand the depths of God's mercy in giving us this inheritance in Christ. We don't deserve an inheritance. We don't deserve everything. Everything has been given to us. We don't deserve it. But I want us to understand that it's ours. Chiefly, the best part of our inheritance is Christ himself. And I want each of us to understand that the glorious power of God that raised Jesus and that gave him victory over death will be manifest in our lives. That as we're raised in Christ, it's by the same power. So that's my desire is is that, that when you lie down and you hear the Lord calling you, you say, speak, Lord, your servant hears you. That we answer when God calls. Jesus is a, is a gentle master. And though his, his power is, his path is, is difficult, it's straight. At the end of the path of following Christ is life everlasting. Every other path leads to destruction. So let us have wisdom. Let us have our eyes open. Let us rejoice in the inheritance that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, in your mercy you give us a gift that we do not deserve. Your grace, which is the nature of grace, is that we don't deserve it. Father, I pray that we would understand very clearly what it is that Paul is praying for his people and that the same applies to us, that, Father, we know that you are the God of all the universe, that you have created everything, that you sustain everything by your power and that your glory is over all the earth. And, Father, any other path apart from following you apart from repenting of our sins, apart from following Christ, any other path leads to your righteous judgment. The judgment that we deserve and are spared from by your mercy. Father, as we go today, I pray that we wouldn't go as a, as a settled people, that we would go with unsettling things in our heart that we would go with a desire for the lost that we would go with a desire to know that that we are in Christ Jesus and that is where our peace comes from I pray that we don't have peace in worldly things that we don't take comfort in our money we don't take comfort in our possessions we don't take comfort in our great knowledge and our skill or the strength of our hands but that our refuge is in you. And Father, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.